The sermon text this morning is Galatians 3, verses 27 through 29. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. This is God's word. Please have a seat. I pray for me, Lord, that I would be clear and that I would be truthful and that as we look at your word, it would be with a sense of anticipation of not only learning, but having an effect who we are and how we think and also how we live. To the glory of Christ, we pray. Amen. Uh, we'll be looking at Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 to 29. Uh, Andy only read two of those verses because it would have been a lengthy passage for us to read. Just by way of, ba- a way of background, again, just so you understand what's going on in this letter and why Paul is writing it, Paul had taken to a journey to a place called Galatia, which is a region in what we now call modern-day Turkey. During his time there, a number of churches uh, were established. He was what we'll call the founding pastor. And most of the people in those congregations were non-Jewish people, like most of the people in this room. They didn't have Jewish backgrounds. Shortly after Paul left those churches, a group of Jews came up there and said, Essentially, what Paul has taught you is absolutely correct. As a matter of fact, they might have said that the best introduction to a relationship with God is through the Lord Jesus Christ. But what Paul failed to tell you was that not only do you have to have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, but essentially there are things that you need to practice. And some of those things that you need to practice, in this case, are Jewish. And so they told and promoted among these churches the idea that there were food laws that needed to be maintained. There were certain foods that they could eat and certain foods that they couldn't eat. And that the men of their congregations needed to be circumcised and certain festivals needed to be honored. And and on and on on the list went. And And essentially what they were saying was that faith alone in Jesus is not enough. There are things that you need to do to have a relationship with God and to maintain that relationship. And so Paul is writing in response to this, and his response to it is very firm, to say the least. I have said on a couple of occasions, Paul was cranky. Paul himself was a Jew who had miraculously come into a relationship with God through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ by faith in him. And so he stood on very firm footing when he talked uh, about Jewish practice and when he talked about faith in the Lord Jesus. And the summary of what Paul is saying is this. It is faith alone in the Lord Jesus Christ as Messiah and King, as sacrifice for you to pay for your sin that brings relationship 
for you with God. And he goes on to say, if you add on any level, any effort, any work, anything that you try to do in order to establish a relationship with God or maintain a relationship with God, not only is it not the gospel, it is damned. And not only is it damned, you have nullified what the Lord Jesus has done for you. You have said that what Jesus has done for you is insufficient, not complete. That his death as the son of God himself is not adequate, that you need to add something to it. Hence why he's cranky. And so this book is a letter to these churches, and he is giving, not his defense, he doesn't need to defend anything, but he is pointing out why the logic of those who have come to persuade these people into sin and into darkness, why their arguments are faulty, why their arguments are faulty logically, humanly speaking, and why they're faulty from the Old Testament. So we're in the middle of the book, and we're going to start to talk a little bit about the law. Now, the law is what God gave to his people, the Jewish people, in the Old Testament, and and some would call it a standard of conduct. You know, this is what you must obey and this is what you must believe in order to have a relationship with God and and this is what these people were promoting and throughout the ages people have misunderstood what the purpose of the law really and truly is the people who were talking to the Galatians they were wrong about what the purpose of the law is and the Galatians were being led astray to believe what they were hearing And so Paul is wanting to clarify that. So the argument that we're going to look at today is the beginning of Paul's argument in terms of why or what the purpose of the law was in the Old Testament. Okay? So I'm going to start this way, and you'll think I've just lost my mind and and I'm off my rocker, and why am I speaking so simply? I am my father's son. My brother is also my father's son. And we are his offspring. Seems pretty obvious, doesn't it? You are not my father's children. You're not my father's sons. You're not my father's daughters. In order for that to happen, my father who is now dead, so it would be awkward, but my father, if he was living, would, would have to adopt you legally, and, and then you would take his name, and, and if you were young, you would move into his house, and you would begin to live by his rules. And, and then you would be an offspring, so to speak, of, of my father. But, but that can't happen, and, and, and that's not the way it's going to work. But this is really, in essence, the debate of what's going on in Galatians. Paul, through his preaching to these people, has said, this is how you enter a relationship with God, 
by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. These other people have come along and said, this is how you enter a relationship with God. That is through faith in Christ plus doing a bunch of other things. And, and in this particular case, you must become Jewish and, and you must live by the, the Jewish rules, so to speak. And then you are part of the family. And Paul says, that's not how you're part of the family of God at all. So if you will, open your Bibles and please look with me. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just briefly reread the verses Andy read, verses 28 and 29. We're going to start there because they're really the summary of, of most of the book of Galatians. Paul says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Now, I'll remind you of what the promise is in just a minute, but, but Paul begins by saying there's neither Jew nor Greek, and there's neither slave nor free, and there's neither male or female. Now, now we're, these are familiar words to a lot of us, but, but there, these three things are there to signify the greatest divisions in all of life. Between a Jew and a non-Jew, there is no greater religious divide. Jews considered everybody non-Jewish sinners and pagans. And the only way they could have a relationship with God was that they could be made Jewish. And, and Gentiles didn't want to have much to think about Jews, and, and on and on it went. But in the religious world, there could be no greater divide. Between a slave and a master, economically and socially, there could be no greater division. The owned and the owner. I mean, you can't, humanly speaking, get a singular greater divide than, than that. And between male and female, even though we live in a world that tries to say there is no difference, biologically, you couldn't get a greater separation than a man and a woman. And so Paul says, in Christ Jesus, any division no longer exists. But if, in fact, you belong to Christ you are a son or daughter of Abraham. You are made an heir, an heir of the promise. Now, we talked about the promises last week. Their promises from God to Abraham were made in Genesis chapter 12 and Genesis chapter 15. I'm not going to go through all of them, but I'm going to highlight one or two. And, and that is, he told Abraham that from you is going to come a great nation whose numbers are going to be like the stars of the sky and the sands of the sea. And he also said that through you, Abraham, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. What that promise means is that Abraham, even though you're going to be the father of the Jewish nation, my promise to you is not exclusively for the Jews, it is for the Jews and all the nations of the earth. In other words, the promises God made to Abraham 
were universal, not exclusively Jewish. But here these people are trying to tell others, you got to become Jewish in order to have a relationship with God, in order to be an heir of God's. But Paul says, no, if you belong to Christ, you are an heir and you are part of Abraham's offspring and sex doesn't have anything to do with it. Social position doesn't have anything to do with it. Religious background or ethnicity have nothing to do with it. So can you see how diametrically opposed Paul's position with the gospel is as opposed to what these naysayers were saying? They were all saying, you've got to become Jewish. Paul says, no, you have to have faith in Christ who is the author of the promise. And now we're going to go back to the beginning of his argument. So if you'll turn with me to verse 15, this is where our section begins. And and Paul, he uses logic and he uses reason, and I know it doesn't work in 2024, but but it did at some point in history uh, to argue logically and with facts and all the rest of it. So we'll try that today. He begins in verse 15 to to give you a human example, brothers. Now I want to point out that word brothers only because if you look back at verse 1 of chapter 3, last week we looked at this text and he was calling the Galatians, O foolish Galatians who has bewitched you. Here he begins to give a human example, brothers. He wants them to know that while he is cranky with them, he still loves them. Okay? To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, or we could, we could substitute the word contract, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now, the promises were made to Abraham back in Genesis 12 and 15 and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, plural, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. All right, let me dissect 15 very quickly. I am not a big contract guy. I've signed very few contracts. I Probably the only time I ever did was when I bought a house that I can think of. You know, I've never signed employment contracts, but most of you in the room are familiar with contracts. And the way I understand that it works, all the details get ironed out and two lawyers make a whole bunch of money uh, making the contract that involves you and and so on and so forth. And, And finally, the thing is met with approval by both parties and both people sign it and then somebody with a stamp comes in and stamps it and then it goes to some sort of recorder's office and then it ends up on a computer nowadays but but it probably went into a filing system somewhere and there it sat for the next 500 years, right? But the one thing I know about contracts is this, particularly ironclad contracts is once it's ratified and it's stamped and shoved in the filing cabinet, it doesn't change. People may want to change it. They may try to change it, but it can't be changed. You can't say, well, you know, 300000 a year sounded really good six months ago, but I want 400000 now. It's been ratified. It's been stamped. It's been put in the bank. And, and, and you, you just can't change the contract. 
What, what Paul is saying, in particularly in verse 16, is that God made a promise to Abraham, and that promise was ratified, and in human terms, stamped and approved and, and put in the filing cabinet. And, and what you're saying is that these naysayers is that the contract details are now changed. That, that Christ alone was fine when God initially made his covenant with Abraham and God made his promises, but now there are extra details that needed to be added. And Paul's just simply pointing out the folly of all that rest of the thinking, that kind of thinking. And so Paul is saying, when God made a promise in verse 16 to Abraham, it wasn't to, to many offspring, it was about one offspring, that from Adam, I'm sorry, from Abraham's line was going to come one offspring, and that offspring is the Lord Jesus Christ, and he is going to be not only the recipient of all the promises made to Abraham, he's going to be the one that distributes the benefit of all the promises to all of those who have a relationship with God. In other words, God made a promise to Abraham about one individual, and that one individual is Christ. And that's what he's saying. But you're coming along trying to change the, the tone of the contract, so to speak. Paul says relationship with God comes through this one individual, the Lord Jesus Christ. You're saying Jesus is fine, but you need some other things. And so Paul continues. Now what he does in, in the next few verses is he gives kind of four arguments about why the law and the works that are being promoted are inferior to the promise that God has made to Abraham that people are to put faith in. Does that make sense? So he's going to give us four arguments. Now, before we go into these four arguments, I want to point out this. Paul never says the law is bad. And Paul never says it should be, you know, like scrap it, throw it into the junk heap. As a matter of fact, he endorses the law in the sense that it is God-given and it is perfect, but it does not compare to the promise God made to Abraham that is fulfilled in Christ, okay? So this is where we kind of see, if we can, the inferiority of the law, and if we want to throw it into a bigger category, the inferiority of works, how man thinks he can add something to what Christ has done. And so this is how he begins in verse 17. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years after God made the promises to Abraham, my addition, the law which came 430 years afterwards does not annul the covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. This is back to that first point. The law, the, the work, so to speak, came 430 years after God had made his promises to Abraham. What you're saying is what showed up four centuries later 
needs to be added into the contract that's already been ratified. And if you didn't notice, the contract, the original promise, was ratified by God himself. It wasn't man-made. So that's argument number one. But then he continues, verse 18. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. That kind of summarizes the whole thing. Now to verse 19, and his arguments begin. And his first arguments is this. Why then the law? Now Paul is great because he always anticipates people's question. You know, he's talking about faith versus law. And, and he, he knows everybody around, the people that he's writing to, and the naysayers are scratching their head. Well, then what was the purpose of the law? And that's what we sit here asking ourselves. And he continues and says, it was added because of our transgressions. Well, that doesn't sound very good. It sounds like it was a rule put on because we needed to be kept in check. Well, let me flesh it out for us fairly quickly. Man was guilty of sin before the law ever showed up. That was not a problem. But when the law came, man was given a picture of the righteousness of God. Not only how great and how distant and how spectacular and how grand God is, but what he would ideally like to see in the behavior, the thoughts, the actions, the deeds of his people. And what happened when the law came was mankind became infinitely more aware of the sin that was in his life. Because now all of a sudden he was seeing the righteousness of God and he was becoming aware of how far he fell short of it. And, and the things that, uh, that he thought might be wrong were confirmed to be wrong. And then there were all kinds of things that he may not have thought were wrong that he was told were wrong. And, and so transgressions were kind of multiplied. Sins were multiplied and, and mankind became more aware of how sinful he really was. And so way the law condemned, you see? It didn't set men free, it, it put them under bondage. I mean, isn't ignorance bliss to a certain extent? I mean, we all have an innate sense of right and wrong, but, but when your father and you leave the house says, I want you home by nine, I don't want you to go over 55, I don't want you to do this, I don't want you to do that, I do want you to do this, I do want you to do that, and you come home and you've messed up on three quarters of them, but you've got them in black and white in front of you, you are that much more guilty, you see, because the law's been laid down, so to speak. And it condemns, and so that's, that's a flaw. Not a flaw, it's not wrong, but, but it's a burden that comes with the law. He continues in verse 19, Until the offspring should come, keeping in mind that the offspring is the Lord Jesus, until the offspring should come to whom the promise has been made. In other words, the law is temporary. Do you see what I'm saying? 
the promise was eternal. The law was temporary. The law was put into place 430 years after Abraham. And it was going to be in place until, the text tells us, the one who was promised shows up. So so if we want to use this term, one of the flaws or the downsides of the law is that it's temporary, it's not permanent. But here these people are trying to make it a permanent fixture of how somebody has a relationship with God. You see, you got to do this, you got to do this, you got to do that, etc., etc. Paul says, no, no, no. The law had a temporary purpose. And then he comes and gives us the third reason, and it was put in place through angels by a mediator. Uh, so, so when Moses was on Mount Sinai, uh, both Deuteronomy and the book of Hebrews tell us that angels kind of delivered the law to Moses. There was a third party involved. You see what I'm saying? Now, there's nothing wrong with a third party, and it's not that it's legally binding or, or anything else, but, but it's not quite the same as a face-to-face contract with one individual. You see what I'm saying? And so Paul points this out as a flaw, and then in verse 20 he says, Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. And it was God himself who made the promise to Abraham. There was no intermediary, and and the law was a two-party contract. Do you understand what I'm saying? God gave the law, man received it, man promised to do as good as he could. God said, okay, and if you don't, this is what's coming. When God made the promise to Abraham, it was entirely one-sided. Abraham didn't wake up one day and say, I'm going to call up God and make a contract with him. God grabbed Abraham, who was a frightful mess at the time, and said, for no reason, I am going to make promises to you. He didn't say this, but Abraham didn't deserve them. He wasn't looking for them. God made promises to Abraham, and his promises were eternal. And he said, I'm going to be the one who fulfills them. And it will be one offspring of yours in the future who will be the fulfillment of all these promises and will be the the one who who gives out the benefits of the promise I am making to you. An entirely one-sided contract from God to Abraham without an intermediary. So he continues, verse 21. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would have come from doing stuff by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everyone under sin so that the promise of faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, I'm hoping most of us haven't been in prison, but if you've ever been in prison, I've been in prison but not incarcerated in prison. I didn't like it at all. And imprisonment carries with it an entirely 
negative connotation for most of us. I mean, you know, I mean, you can't think of imprisonment and think. And so, so the word imprisonment here is part of its meaning, but not all of its meaning. You know, I want, I want us to be clear because he says the law imprisons people. Well, it does in the sense that it points out people's sin and their inability to live righteously before God and so on and so forth. But let me point out a few other things. They're, they're hard to see as positive, but, but, but I want you to understand how it can be positive. If, if one is incarcerated, try to, to get outside of 2023 but, or 24, but if somebody is incarcerated, they get three square meals a day. And they have a bed to sleep in. And they have walls and they have rules. But by and large, they're safe and they're protected. Because there's a barrier around them. Now, they may not be free to do all that they want to do, which is imprisonment. But there is a level of security, you see, that comes with imprisonment. And the law acts that way. The law acts not only as, as punitive, pointing out the sin of mankind and, and restricts mankind, which is a type of imprisonment, but it does guard and protect. It does provide for. Do you understand what I'm saying? And, and he continues kind of the analogy in verse 20, 24. He says, so then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. So let me just step back and try to, because I know it's a lot of stuff, and I want to streamline it as much as I can. Paul says, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ alone, that Jesus the Messiah is the one that God promised to Abraham who would be the fulfillment of all the promises. When Jesus shows up, the role of the law will have been completed. Its role as guardian, as imprisonment, will have been fulfilled. And putting faith in the one who was promised to Abraham provides you relationship with God the Father for all eternity. The law, when it was fully active, served as a guardian. It made you aware of sin. It put you in prison, put barriers and walls around you. But it never justified it never gave you that relationship with God. But when Christ came up as the fulfillment of all these things, faith placed in him gave you relationship with God through him. Now this isn't all that the law does, and we're going to look at more of it next week. But, but I'm hoping that we can kind of get this picture and Paul is saying, these naysayers are telling you that something that showed up that was temporary, that was given to mankind through a mediator, 
has to be added to a promise that God himself made to a man about one who would fulfill it all. And he says that's obscene because it nullifies the person and the work of Jesus the Messiah. And so in conclusion, he says these things. Look with me at verse 25 and 26. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Now, faith always existed. Don't misunderstand the text. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham put faith in God 430 years before the law. What he is saying is now that faith in the fulfillment of the promise has come, we are no longer under a guardian. We are no longer under the guardian. Christ has fulfilled the law and the walls of the prison and the warden are gone because Christ has done it on all. Verse 26, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. And that's where the debate ends. You don't have to become Jewish. If you're male, you don't become female. If you're a slave, you don't become free. If you're Gentile, you don't become Jew. To have relationship with God, you put your faith in the one God promised to Abraham, who happened to be a Jew. But becoming Jew or doing anything else in an effort to earn the favor of God only says Jesus is unnecessary. And God does not respond well to being told that the death of his son means nothing. And that's what Paul is arguing against. So, dear friends, a lot of stuff, a lot of brain power. The short version is, man is never good enough and cannot earn the favor of God. To believe that we can is to make a mockery of the Lord Jesus. And God does not tolerate that well. It is by faith alone in what Jesus the Messiah, the fulfillment of God's promise, has done for us. No matter who we are, that matters everything. Let me pray. Father in heaven, um, this text is so challenging because it is so simple and so clear, and yet the waters run very, very deep. I pray that it would penetrate our hearts and our souls to the glory of our King, the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.